Okay, so we're live, Ian. <laughs> okay, so yeah, um, Ian, thank you for coming back onto the podcast again. It's a little bit tricky with some IT issues <laughs> uh, getting started, but we're here now. Um, yeah, I, I had a look, and actually, I realised the last time I spoke to you was in May two thousand and twenty-one. So um, it's been a little while. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess a lot has happened and hasn't happened in some ways <laughs> uh, <laughs> since then. But um, just for the audience listening, you know, one of the main reasons I got in touch with Ian um, is because I'm not sure when this was, Ian, but you, you I think it was you who got me on to Ian McGillchrist and his work. Mm -hmm. And in particular, his last book, um, The Matter With Things, and his previous book, uh, the master and his emissary and I've been going on a, a deep dive into that book and lots of talks and podcasts and uh, lectures that he's been doing since and really for me this has been a, a game changer and it's been very enlightening for me to it's it's changed my worldview a little bit and maybe just kind of reinforce some beliefs and theories that I had anyway and uh, I think initially I wanted to get in touch with you to talk about Ian McGillchrist's work relating to the hemispheres, specifically around uh, practice yoga and in mm. particular Ashtanga yoga. But I guess, and also your take on Banda, which for me has kind of almost become my sort of philosophy in life a little bit, Ian. And a lot of that I, I'm grateful for you for learning that from in particular how Banda plays a role in our yoga practice, but also potentially in other aspects of our life. And uh, for me, that's been a, a very massive focus point of my, my Ashtanga yoga practice and, you know, continues to be. So um, is there anything you want to say on that before we kind of start? Because I know we talked about maybe just highlighting McGillchrist's work a little bit and his view on the hemispherical differences of the brain. So it might be good for the listeners just to get our view on that before we kind of go into some some of the details, which I think could be like complete rabbit holes for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for so many things. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of directions we could go <laughs> with, with this general theme. But um, yeah, yeah uh, McGillchrist's work has been, you know, definitely a game changer for me as well. So it's, uh, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's great to hear. And you know, I know we've communicated about this, you know, over the last year or so a little bit. It's great to hear that mm. it's, you know, it's, it's had that effect on you also. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember when I, he was on my radar for a while. I think, you know, when his first book came out, The Master and His Emissary, it, uh, it popped up somehow. But I, you know, and I thought, oh, that, that sounds like something that would be quite interesting to me. But I never really delved into it until... Um, yeah, it was probably around the time we last communicated, maybe a year and a mm. half ago, we, uh, the last time I was on your podcast. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I, I started reading The Master and His Emissary and, you know, also as you have, you know, started listening to a lot of talks and mm. interviews and podcasts, um, you know, and for him, for me, uh, the big thing was, you know, it was, a, as you said, a reinforcement of you know, a, a worldview I've basically been developing since, um, probably since I was a teenager. So, you know, I'm mm. 47 now. So let's say over the last three decades, <laughs> um, 
yeah and i guess you know for me it's um you know since that time you know since i was a, a teenager and then studying in university i found that there are particular ways of perceiving the world and attending to the world and understanding the world that are you know i think somewhat different than you know the general trends in in you know modern human civilization and human culture um mm. and i guess i can kind of break those down into three categories um you know the first would be you know i tend to see a lot of the world you know especially the natural world through the lens of complex systems um you mm. know so complex systems um you know when we're understanding things from this perspective it's you know it's it's about looking at the relationships uh, between a thing, you know, within a thing and between that thing and other things, um, mm. you know, so rather than breaking a thing down into its component parts and examining the properties of those parts to understand how the thing works, it's, it's more about looking at the, the network of relationships that, you know, the, the particular thing is embedded within. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, everything in the natural world is a complex system. I mean, cells are complex systems. Human beings are complex systems. Ecosystems are complex systems. Human societies are complex systems. Um, you know, and so these are very different from, you know, say, machines, which are complicated yeah. systems, but not complex systems. You know, we can understand a machine by breaking it up into its component parts, you know, and if something goes wrong with the machine we can find which part is broken fix that part and then the machine starts working again so it's a very mm -hmm. uh, linear way of analyzing things um, complex systems don't work that way you know they're very non-linear um, mm -hmm. so that's one aspect um, the other one i would say second one is embodiment um, you know i've always been a very physically active person and i always felt that i understood things understand things through my body. Um, you know, embodiment to me eliminates the false duality between body and mind. Um, you know, they're just sort of two aspects of one process, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so there's a, a lot of wisdom and intelligence in the body, you know, and that I would say gives one access to intuition and intuitive intelligence and you know that's always been a way that i i tend to understand the world is you know through my body and through my intuition um and then the third thing would be animism so animism sort of being that aspect of spirituality that we tend to find in most you know pre-modern cultures and civilizations um and so animism kind of sees everything as uh you know, being alive and possessing soul and spirit. So, you know, not only human mm. beings, but of course all animals, you know, have soul and spirit and have agency and volition. Um, you know, plants also have soul and spirit and, you know, agency and, you know, not even living things, but things like mountains or you know, lakes mm. or rivers or things like that. You know, we could think of them all as having, you know, sort of a, a soul or, or, you know, uh, some kind of volition or agency. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt that, you know, all, all of these three things that I've sort of, you know, as I said, I've developed these ways of perceiving the world over, you know, most of my life. Um, I always felt that they were kind of interconnected, but, you know, I never really had a philosophical framework to um, express how they're interconnected. And when, once I 
came across the work of Ian McGilchrist, I realized that, well, these are all how the right hemisphere actually tends to perceive the world. Um, you know, so it was definitely reinforcing and it was kind of a, an aha moment for me. I was like, wow, yeah, this is, this yeah. is exactly, you know, <laughs> what I've been doing for my entire life, which, <laughs> which tends to go, uh, you know, counter to, you know, the major trends in, in, in modern human culture and civilization. So, hmm. um, yeah, so essentially, you know, as far as I understand his work, um, you know, McGilchrist sees the right and the left, hem left hemisphere as being two opposite but complementary ways of attending to the world or perceiving the world or understanding the world. So, hmm. you know, the right hemisphere tends to take a very broad, holistic view of um, the world and the last time left hemisphere tends to have a very sort of zoomed in, um, you know, limited uh, perspective and scope. Um, and so they're both essential and they're both, um, you know, useful in their, excuse me for a second. Yeah. Okay, so we're just taking a little pause. <laughs> Ian's just stepped off the mic for a little bit, but um, I guess I can jump in on my own uh, views around this, but uh, we'll just wait a moment for Ian to come back. I think it'd be good to, to share this when Ian's back on. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, no stress. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so both the right and the left hemisphere are essential, um, you know, for, for understanding the world. Um, but according to McGilchrist, the right hemisphere, um, you know, should be primary, I guess, in, in the natural mm. state of, of, you know, how human beings have evolved. Um, you know, we need to have this this broad holistic understanding of the world, and then the left hemisphere is, um, you know, sort of a a tool that should be used when we need to zoom in in detail on you know sort of particular aspects of our environment or the world. Um, but you know, according to McGilchrist, and this is also what you know I feel and I believe is that this relationship has kind of become inverted you know, mm. in, in modern human civilization where the left hemisphere is kind of taken over and, you know, the right hemisphere has kind of been subjugated to the, you know, the whims of the left hemisphere. So, yeah, that's my mm. overview of, of my understanding of McGilchrist's work. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I completely agree. And I think the way you described the, the way you've kind of been <clears throat> living your life, I think it's no wonder that you and, and I, get, I, I as well sort of agree with the way McGill Chris kind of explains all of this because it sounds like you've kind of been living your life that way anyway. Mm -hmm. 
And maybe Ian, uh, Miss, I'm going to say Mr. McGillcrest because you're both called Ian. <laughs> I think it could, <laughs> yeah. be, it could be confusing, but um, yeah, I, you know, I think I think about this the same when Ian kind of uh, Mr. McGillcrest explains the two hemispheres and the, this less hemispherical need for grabbing and manipulating and controlling and is much more open to sort of delusion and uh, and lies. And this kind of need to be certain and sure and everything to be predictable. And for me, the world lately has become, in a way, a manifestation of that. It's He describes it as a re-representation. And I thought that was a very uh, clear way of expressing that to me, that I think the world we're living in now seems to be more of a re-representation of the left hemisphere's way of perceiving reality. And maybe we're kind of... Uh, expressing that externally because I don't feel that largely we are um, keeping things in line with how Mr. McGillchrist describes the the master and the emissary and it seems like maybe the emissary is becoming or, or wanting to be the master and not seeing life in this kind of uh, uncertain um, interconnected flow state that we would say we would like to lead with that, you know, and kind of much more open to risk and letting go of control mm-hmm. and kind of much more in touch with the body and the unconscious mind. And I think that this is, I don't know if we're going to go into a deep dive into COVID, but for me, COVID was <laughs> a kind of an insane expression of that. You know, for me, it's been the apex of the sort of manifestation of that in some ways. And for me, it was, Reading Ian's books, Mr. McGillchrist's books, has been such a an explanation of how polarized um, the world is kind of becoming, and kind of this incessant need for control and measurement, and uh, this denial of the imaginative, intuitive self. Which for me, I've been trying to live my life that way for many years now, really, which is just leading my own thoughts and my nature by my intuition rather than kind of other ways of living which for me brings about a much more interconnected flow state of living and uh, much more open to change and control and so for yeah for me the the book has been a game changer and like you say it's been really mostly around reinforcing I guess what I feel I've been kind of trying to live like and advocate to the people around me but um yeah i mean like i said i think there's a rabbit hole with so many topics here with society and covid and whatnot but um yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't know where we might go with that i feel like it's such a big a big thing but um i mean one question i could ask you in is that because one of the things that comes up from McGillchrist's comments and lots of people ask him which is how do you address this imbalance you know and he doesn't really answer it, and I, and I kind of know why he doesn't. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I understand that. But, uh, you know, most people want an answer. Most people want a solution or some kind of um, uh, practice that they can choose to do. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because I feel that through my Ashtanga practice, this has and continues to bring about this balancing which for me energetically could totally relate to the hemispherical difference of the brain and uh, I'm floating over a few things here so just jump in when you like but also 
we discussed, you know, quite briefly on online mm. around how potentially yoga practice could not address this imbalance correctly. And I wondered if you could share some some thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, you're right. I've, uh, you know, I've also seen a few <laughs> interviews uh, where, where, you know, people have asked McGill Christ how, mm. you know, how do we address this imbalance? How do we, you know, how do we bring human society back into the, you know, the point of view of, of the right hemisphere or, or rearrange the balance of power or relationship between the hemispheres to their rightful place. Mm. Um, oh, <laughs> sorry, we're having a big storm here and a tree just fell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Uh, so, yeah, and you're right. He never really gives concrete answers he says it's 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 complicated and there you know mm. there are so many aspects to it and i agree with that but um you know for me personally i think you know anything that promotes embodiment you know living through the body anything that promotes more contact with nature and with the living world um you know will certainly help us um mm. you know and that's I think why from a young age I, I, I developed those ways of, of being and perceiving is because I spent a lot of time being physically active. I spent a lot of time in nature, um, you know, and so I think those really did shape, um, you know, the, the development of, you know, my, my right hemisphere way of seeing the world. Um, and so, yeah, yoga definitely, um, you know, is a, one way that we could do that. Um, but again, I think the important thing is it's, it's not just the doing the yoga, but the how we do the yoga, you know, and unfortunately, mm. you know, like anything else in modern culture, the the way people approach the yoga practice has fallen under the influence of, you know, over-reliance on the left hemisphere's way of perceiving as well. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's, it's the way we're indoctrinated from a young age, you know, to, to see everything in that way. And so it's natural when people come to yoga, you know, they also look at mm. the yoga practice in this way. And so, especially in younger people, I see this, you know, mm. I think people who grew up, um, you know, who grew up never not knowing the internet, you know, I, 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 I see <laughs> yeah. a marked difference, you know, wherever that line was somewhere in the, I guess the, the younger millennials and, and, and Gen yeah. Z, um, you know, I think that's sort of where the, uh, mm. the line occurs, but yeah, especially in younger people, you know, they have a very difficult time, you know, dropping into embodiment and intuition. They try to understand the yoga practice, you know, very rationally, very intellectually, um, you know, especially mm. in Mysore style Ashtanga, you know, even something as simple as, you know, remembering the sequence, you know, the first part of the sequence, um, you can see people yeah. who under, you can see people who learn how to memorize the sequence through the action of their body and people who try to learn how to understand the sequence, you know, through, you know, abstract memorization, um, hmm. you know, and then of course the people who learn through the motions of the body pick it up much more quickly. And, you know, people mm -hmm. who are trying to remember it at the level of thinking, um, you know, have a much more difficult time with it. So, uh, yeah, the yoga practice and the Ashtanga practice, practice especially can be useful, but I think, you know, again, it's only if we approach it from the right perspective or the, 
you know, the right hemisphere perspective. This is one of my biggest challenges as a teacher is to try to get people to, mm. <laughs> you know, into this, this intuitive embodied state when they're practicing, you know, rather than yeah. an intellectual state, you know, and there are a lot of, um, I guess you could say influencers or <laughs> influential people in the yoga sphere who, who do promote this, you know, aspects of the left hemisphere as well. And, you know, insisting on very rigorous anatomical analysis and, you know, things like that, which, you know, again, mm -hmm. bring everything back into the realm of the, the left hemisphere. So, so yeah, it's uh, useful, but also challenging. Yeah. I mean, that's something I sort of observed too. And <clears throat> something that I really noticed is, you know, the people's incessant need to try to fix everything you yeah, know yeah absolutely this kind of need to reduce any pain or symptom or something that's changing within the body down to some specific thing or specific specific part and for me I think one of the biggest learning tools of the Ashtanga system and probably from practicing with you too has been the ability to drop that <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. and kind of much more move into this sort of intuitive state of trust in the body and this allowance for change and the comings and going and to kind of, I don't know if I want to use the word surrender, but um, mm -hmm. just the allowance for things to just come and go and be without having to kind of go in with the mind and analyze and kind of reduce everything down to a particular thing that kind of totally changes the energy of the practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think actually surrender is a, a great term. Um, mm. You know, there's a, a surrendering to a process and a surrendering to uncertainty, um, you know, which again are, are properties of the right hemisphere. I mean, the right hemisphere mm. sees things as, as dynamic and, you know, processes, whereas the left hemisphere sees things as static and, and, yeah. and or rigid. Um, and so, yeah, when it comes to pain and injury, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a, a place where we really see this, uh, this manifest, um, you know, the body is a, a changing process, a changing phenomenon, and, and the practice exerts an influence on this, you know, this evolutionary process of the body, um, you know, and when we can surrender to that, um, you know, rather than trying to manipulate and control it, you know, this is, mm -hmm. this is how we get into that state. Um, yeah, no, I think surrender is actually a great term. Yeah, for me, I, I don't want to get into like a, not a negative frame of mind, but this is something I see mostly in the yoga world is, is reducing things down to small, small installments of the body. Yeah, it's really like compartmentalizing the body and its energetic qualities and kind of reducing it down to specific parts and over analyzing just like massively, massively over analyzing everything. And uh, I think it's difficult for people to kind of get out of that mode of thinking and more into like half the time it's kind of convincing people to kind of trust themselves and their body and actually that their body is much smarter than <laughs> than they kind of are themselves mm -hmm. and sort of allowing that to kind of uh, unfold you know yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. yeah when you know whenever there's you know a pain or an injury or you know not even necessarily a pain but a stiffness you know one of the most mm -hmm. common questions students ask is well you know, which part of my body needs to change or how do I, how do I, how do I open this part of my body or how do I <laughs> fix, you know, you know, that part of my body. Um, yeah. 
you know, and the answer I always give them is it's it's not about a specific part. It's about the relationship between the parts of the body, and it's about the mm. whole body. You know, it's it's never about one part. You know, the body works as a whole. Um, you know, and often you get I get a puzzled stare. You know, <laughs> in response to that. Um, but yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, this fixation on parts, and especially this fixation on fixing parts. Or mm. fixing things you know again it's the it's the analogy of treating the body like a machine you know which yeah. is very much a, a left hemisphere way of, of perceiving which you know which people have to learn to to let go of you know and again just surrender to this process and you know as one practices mm. long term you know one gets the experiential understanding that you know everything works itself out you know if you if you yeah. just surrender and let the process unfold you know, things move, the pain moves, the, the stiffness mm. moves, and, and, you know, you just have to let the, the evolutionary process take the direction it's taking, just go along for the ride. Yeah, totally. And that kind of trust, I think for me, there's a big part of that is that trust in, uh, I guess we could go back to that word surrender, but also in, in your body's intuitive sort of ability to heal itself and mm -hmm. to regenerate and kind of creating the right environment for it to do that and seeing that it is this complex system of things and everything is interconnected and talking to each other at the same time and reducing that down to simple things is going to just create more tension, more anxiety, more fear, <laughs> yeah. you know, more mistrust in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for me, this was a big thing around COVID because what I largely saw was people having a lot of mistrust and fear within their own body you know, and their own ability to kind of heal or feeling strong yeah. or just feeling resilient to whatever might be and externalizing your power, which is what I mostly saw is people externalizing their power of, um, <clears throat> you know, medicine or, you know, we could go into like a rabbit hole with this, but, you know, I, that's what I mostly saw was people having fear within their own body's ability to heal itself and defend itself against something external. And that's kind of what I see a lot of that is an externalized sort of um, power really around pharmaceutical industry or, you know, whoever, whoever's going to come along and fix it for you yeah. rather than having that internalized belief and trust in yourself and your ability to kind of stay strong and healthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, but, and, and, um, the, and the reduction yeah. of health to, you know, again, reducing health to, you know, uh, just a few certain um, aspects. Um, mm. You know, again, health is health and well-being are, are, are you know, very col complex, very holistic um, concepts. You know, it's, it's mm. um, but reducing it to say, you know, one virus or one illness or you know, and one cure or one one way to fix it is, um, yeah, again, that's a very manipulative left hemisphere way of, of approaching the concept of health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. But I think, um, how do you feel? Um, how do you feel that your? Because I, I feel like your philosophy and um, <clears throat> and I guess my philosophy too around Banda for me plays a massive part in this because mm -hmm. I feel like this is a huge focus point on how you can see the energetic qualities of the body, and I feel that. I mean, I don't know where you kind of took that from your view on Banda, because I do feel it's quite different from how it's kind of 
traditionally taught. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could kind of just share a little bit more around that and how that plays a role potentially in hemispherical differences. Because for me, I've had my own theories around this since mm -hmm. uh, kind of going into it with McGillcraft's book. Yeah. Yeah, since you mentioned that, um, I thought a little bit about it. Um, mm. But for me, you know, just to define my point of view on Banda, um, you know, to me, Banda basically means, um, you know, a relationship between opposing patterns, you know, and, and mm. you know, that we can address that on many levels. Um, you know, the main Banda we work with in Ashtanga Yoga is, is Mula Banda. You know, it's the central bandha of the body. So, you know, approaching it from a purely physiological level, you know, to me, it's the opposing movements of the upper, of the upper and the lower body. You know, so say, for example, if we're standing in Samastitihi, mm. you know, the lower body from the pelvic bones down through the legs and the feet is, is you know, moving downwards into the ground and the, the upper body from, you know, inside the pelvis, you know, up through the spine and the shoulder girdle and the head is is lifting up you know and expanding outwards in the opposite direction um mm. you know and, and both of these forces have to be sort of in in they're in opposition and they're also in communication and dynamic relationship to one another and this is what creates this experience of bandha you know which is mm. a, a sense of balance um you know in a little more esoteric terms it's it's you know the lifting force is the pranic energy and the dropping force is the aponic energy um mm. you know when you mention that I've, I've kind of been thinking about whether that is analogous to the right and the left hemisphere and i don't think it exactly maps onto them um but it's it's of course a very similar concept in that these two mm. these two opposite things have to be in you know, in dynamic communication with one another. You know, if they were analogous, I would have to say that the the aponic force, the dropping force, you know, is, is analogous to the right hemisphere um, mm. you know, because it's primary. And the lifting force, the pranic force is, is you know, analogous to the left hemisphere. Um, mm. You know, if you see people who have a lot of pranic energy, you know, without you know, that, that grounding aponic force um, to counterbalance mm. it, you know, they tend to really become uh, imbalanced in a pathological way, in the same way that, you know, people with an over-reliance on the left hemisphere become mm. sort of imbalanced. Um, so, yeah, I think if we look at it that way, you know, we could say the right hemisphere is somewhat similar to the, you know, the grounding force, mm. the aponic force. And that's also something that's really missing in modern society. You know, our, our mm. modern society tends to be hyperpronic. You know, people are very yeah. ungrounded um, and hyperstimulated. Um, so it's, it's similar in that way too. But, but the other way we can look at it, which I think is a little bit more, um, a little bit more similar to the, the hemispheres is between the, the Ida and the Pingala, you know, in traditional mm. Hatha yoga. You know where the Ida represents, you could say the 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 right side or the solar channel, and the Pingala represents the the lunar side or the left channel. And so when we do alternate nostril breathing, you know Nadi Shodhana from the right to the left and the left to the right. Um, you know we're accessing these two. Uh, you know again these two opposing patterns in the body. Um, 
And so I actually think those are, are, are a little bit more analogous yeah. to the, the hemispheres. Um, you know, of course, it's the opposite. So the right channel, you know, the right nostril and the right side of the body corresponds to the left hemisphere because the, mm. the nerves switch, you know, between the, the brain and the body, mm. you know, and the, the left nostril and the left side of the body corresponds to the right hemisphere. So, yeah, that's, it's very interesting to, to think about. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that has more of a, a visual effect in my mind as well, because we're kind of talking about the two different sides again you know these opposing sides the left and the right and yeah yeah it's interesting because for me this i feel i do feel like this and especially your view on banda could be like a philosophical way of living you know this it's always this opposing forces isn't it it's always trying to address the imbalance between two opposing forces and i actually looked on this podcast recently and I realized that most of my discussions are pretty much about two opposites. Mm, (laughs) You know, they're literally around the two and and the way McGillchrist describes this and it's never going too strongly in one direction. It's, you know, that, and and actually he describes that as that, um, you know, pushing too much in one direction actually leads you to where you actually want it to come away from. (laughs) You know, it has this cyclical effect and, and I think that's something I also took from you around practice is that, you know, you're always trying to find balance in the practice, whether that's strength and flexibility or, you know, there's so many different angles to look at that. But what you're always trying to do is find the work to address any imbalances that are in the energetic body. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah. so for me, that's always kind of been there and it's gone the more and more I go into that the more that feels like this sort of philosophical uh, way of living of of addressing these imbalances and trying to find this kind of healthy middle ground between two things that for me you know brings you into this more balanced state and I think there's some kind of deeper wisdom to that and I've gone into this a lot and especially sometimes in Shavasana and some other interesting experiences I've had at the end of practice where there's this sort of intuitive sort of need to go into that there's like a deeper wisdom somewhere within my body or intuition that is kind of knows that's the healthiest state to be in Mm. (laughs) and I and I can't really explain it and the more I listen to McGillchrist talk these things around intuition and imagination and uh, I guess you could say spirituality or uh, the sacred. You can't really explain it that well, and maybe there aren't words that necessarily can convey it properly. But it's a felt experience in the body that comes from somewhere deeper within you that you can't really explain that well. But you kind of know it and you trust it, and it just feels right. It feels like truth. You know, it's this sort of balanced state and. For me, this philosophy around banda and practice and these two energies has been a sort of um, a high road to that. You know, it's mm. been a kind of um, an express route to sort of connecting with that. And uh, I don't know if does that any of that kind of resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this, as you said, the, you know, the concept of banda for me also is, uh, you know, it's an entire philosophy of life. Um, we exist in all of these polarities and and dualities and it's um 
you know, as you said, it's it's never about trying to maximize any one extreme, but you know, it's often it's good to explore a certain extreme, but then that extreme always mm -hmm. has to be balanced by you know an equal uh, journey to the other extreme. So. Yeah, and the deeper one goes into the practice, the deeper one starts to, you know, as you said, realize, um, you know, how that manifests within ourselves. You know, as you mm. progress through the series and you get into, you know, more extreme postures, more extreme pranic postures, more extreme aponic postures, um, you know, and we, we stimulate the, the two polarities, um, you know, this does tend to take one deeper into oneself and you know it brings mm. about a, a certain sense of balance um you know like you said that can be experienced in shavasana or after the practice or yeah. you know throughout the day um yeah absolutely it's, uh, is that something you say you could see that is potentially being not practiced in the right way uh, as you see as largely where Maybe people are finding something they're good at potentially or a part mm -hmm. of their practice that they excel out, you could say, externally. Yeah. And that, that gives them some sort of um left hemispheric kind of charge. And then, you know, the the need to go and push more into that area is bringing about this imbalance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a big problem in the Ashtanga system. You know, the way the system is designed is that we have to encounter everything, right? You know, you mm. if it's practiced, you know, uh, what I would term properly, you know, which mm. means you sort of, you know, you gain at least a, a basic mastery of, of each particular posture in vinyasa before you, you move on to the next one. You know, because we all have particular strengths and weaknesses, you know, according to the, you know, the structure of our you know, our body, our mind, our state of being that we, we bring to the practice. So some people are good mm -hmm. at backbending. Some people are good at forward bending. Some people are, you know, naturally flexible and, you know, they don't mm -hmm. have much strength. Some people are naturally strong and, you know, they're not very flexible. And, you know, if, if we practice in a way or if we're taught in a way that we just sort of breeze through the practice and, you know, we, we, we do the postures and the things that we're good at and then we, just sort of gloss over, skip, you know, the postures and the, you know, the, the vinyasas or the aspects of the practice that challenge us. And yeah, for sure, we, we can drive ourselves further into imbalance, you know, or at least we, we, we don't get the, the deeper state of balance that we potentially good, could. Um, you know, when we really stop at those points in the practice that are difficult for us and we, you know, we spend the time, even if it takes months or years to cultivate you know those those movements. hey ian i'm really sorry but i lost you for about oh. 30 seconds there yeah i think there might have been a, an internet thing oh, okay. go back <laughs> sorry um, yeah <laughs> okay i'll try to back up a bit um yeah recap um yeah so if we um you know if we if we take the time to focus on the aspects of the practice that are most challenging to us you know the the postures mm. or the vinyasas that are least natural for us, um, you know, then we do cultivate a, um, elements of ourselves that otherwise in life we never would have been able to cultivate. Um, you mm. know, and we do tend to bring about that, that deeper balance, you know, whereas mm. if we skip over them and we just focus or, you know, even go deeper into the things that we're good at, then, yeah, we can certainly, you know, 
drive ourselves to one polarity, you know, in this sense to create a, or emphasize mm. the imbalances in our overall state of being and character. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's probably something I got from you or, you know, along the lines of practice is that it's trying to find where the work is. Yeah, it's trying to find, I guess, not necessarily what's the hardest, but I guess you can sort of see it in yourself intuitively where you, where you need to work, you know, what you might be skipping or what areas you're kind of avoiding. And mm-hmm. I guess the role of a good Mysore teacher is to to challenge patterns, yeah? <laughs> it's to challenge uh, existing patterns and kind of bring about new patterns that might be more balanced or healthier yeah yeah absolutely yeah a good teacher ends up um (laughs) being a very difficult teacher because you know (laughs) you know literally what we're doing is inducing discomfort in the students yeah you know psychological discomfort physical discomfort by you know by sort of forcing them to go into those patterns that you know that they most want to avoid and you know are, are less likely to you know, naturally want to develop. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. It, it's really interesting. And I don't want to get on a, a bashing rant about other styles or practices because I, I think, you know, generally breathing, moving and being in bodies is a benefit for everyone and every type of practice that enhances that is a good thing. But I definitely see, you know, being in and around different yoga studios, I feel like in some way yoga has sort of become largely this kind of... Um, I'm not sure how to describe it, but like, uh, like um, going to a spa or something, you know, a kind mm. of uh, <laughs> a kind of health retreat where you want to create an environment where you want everyone to feel good, right? Yeah, and yeah. maybe maybe there's music and maybe there's some other things that kind of create this holistic kind of um, place to feel good, which I think is nice. But I've never really seen yoga practice that way. I've always seen it as uh, I don't know, like a lot of my practice, I don't feel good. <laughs> you know, there isn't, yeah. there isn't like a kind of, um, and I don't mean that in a, like I feel bad or, you know, but it, I've never really used it that way. I've yeah. never used it as a way to sort of fluff myself into some kind of comfortable state. Really, it's been a, a challenging process of self-discovery. And I, I kind of feel that a lot of yoga practice, again, I'm not bashing, I think it's positive what people do, but it, maybe a lot of it is around kind of cotton walling people and kind of uh, creating this cozy, comfortable space, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Real personal work is challenging. It's, it's absolutely yeah. challenging. Yeah. So, you know, and that's why Ashtanga isn't, you know, the most popular form <laughs> of yoga. You know? No, you know, and, it, and it doesn't have to be, <laughs> you know, not, no, every, not everybody is ready to do that kind of work or that's not what every, yeah. everybody's looking for. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been an interesting observation for me, just being in and around different yoga studios. And again, I'm not being, uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just an interesting observation of what I think largely yoga studios have become or are becoming, you know, this sort of, uh, this comfortable space. Yeah, I don't think it's a question of right or wrong. It's just more what mm. what are you using the practice for, right? Mm. So, yeah, and if somebody wants to use the practice to have that experience where it's just more of a superficial mm. feel good, um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, but it's very no. different from this deeper work of self-encountering. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, which makes me think about this hemispherical kind of rebalancing or 
mm-hmm. you know, again, this sort of um, just choosing what you want all the time or what kind of makes you feel good. And, and you know, maybe that, maybe that doesn't necessarily bring about uh, a certain balancing of the body or energetically or the hemispheres necessarily. I think a lot of my focus around this talk and around my observations with McGillchrist's book is around what does cultivate this, um, you could say, the correct balance or rebalancing and potentially what doesn't you know mm-hmm. yeah for sure for sure yeah yeah it's interesting I, I had a story i might to share with you which was a fellow practitioner who um you know because a lot of the things i take from mcgill christ's work has been around intuition and imagination which for me most of my practice i feel is about cultivating that you know the, yeah. a deeper connection to my real self intuition whatever you might call it and um kind of feeling in sync with that and sort of uh, connected to that. And uh, there's a lady I've practiced with called Christine and she she's recently started practicing Mysore and Ashtanga and she, you know, she described it as coming home, you know, for her was the Mysore room. So I think she's, <laughs> she's found the right space. And um, she told me this story where she, I think it might have been after practicing Chavasana and she kind of connected with her, you could say, her energetic self, and mm-hmm. she could kind of feel different energies in the room or around her at the time. And one of those wasn't a very good one. It was a kind of a negative of energy. And she, I don't know if she's experienced this before, but she said she found this ability to sort of meet that energy with the same energy, which kind of created this kind of healthy boundary for herself. And the mm-hmm. way she described this um, experience it for me it came out of a completely intuitive natural thing for her no one described it to her or you know uh, talked her through some sort of healing process it was something that just naturally came about from practice and for me it kind of seemed like a visual representation of her ability to create a healthy boundary between herself and someone else yeah and I thought you you can't really describe that to someone. You can't really explain that or teach someone that. It's just something that intuitively came up for her from practice. And I think these are kind of the embodied spirit experiences that um, McGill Christ kind of talks about that are sort of, in a way, a sort of mythological way of seeing something. It's a story. It's a, it's a kind of visual thing that you experience. You can't really explain. And for me, these are the things that kind of come about from having a an embodied experience you know Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i mean the more we the deeper we go into embodied experience in practice um you know i think as you said earlier the more we we cultivate this sense of of trust in the self you know i like Mm. to say you know in patanjali's yoga sutras he talks about ishwara pranidhana which is usually translated or interpreted as meaning surrender to god I think ultimately mm. it's, it's, it's surrender into the self. Um, mm. You know, this is this deep, deep sense of, of reverence and trust that comes as you, you know, you go through these deep embodied experiences in the practice, you know, and then from there, that's where, you know, intuitive healing and intuitive understanding arises from. So, yeah, mm. absolutely. You know, I think, you know, when I think about what I've learned in the yoga practice, I mean, 99 percent or more of it has come from you know my own experience in the practice you know less than one mm-hmm. percent has been 
externally given to me, you know, by teachers. You know, I think the role of a teacher is just to facilitate a space where, where that sort of intuitive embodied unfolding can occur. Um, yeah. A good teacher will do that, right? So the, yeah. that practitioners can come to these realizations and these experiences within themselves. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, I've been fortunate to practice with you and other people that kind of create create that space where there isn't really any anything other than this kind of neutral place for you to go and explore. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, something else I wanted to um, touch on really was um, something that Ian McGilchrist phrased, which was active receptivity. Mm. <laughs> And for me, this spoke about so many different things, but um, well, I thought about it really from practice, meditation, stanga practice, lots of different things, but I think just generally an embodied practice. And an observation I had recently, which is probably quite amusing, is uh, I have a local gym to me and sometimes I use it. And, you know, I would say that 90% of people in there are constantly on their phones when they're training, mm. you know? And for me, this was kind of strange because I haven't been in a gym for a number of years. And I thought, you know, how, what's going on? You know, it's kind of, people are training. There was one guy that was doing a Skype call, skipping, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's kind of crazy in a way, but it's become normal. And I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world. I'm assuming it's kind of quite common now, but... It I seems to be so, yeah. the norm to, to kind of multitask even when you're training, yeah, you know, even yeah. when you're physically doing exercise. And I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm relating all of this to McGillchrist's work now. And uh, it just was bizarre. And it still is bizarre when I kind of witness it. And, and I thought about this active receptivity and practice and listening to the feedback of your body, which... Uh, maybe people aren't even doing when they're actually physically active now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know, again, that's, that's a, a trend we really have to try to counter when we're, we're teaching the Ashtanga practice. Um, mm. You know, in a good Mysore room tends to remove all those distractions. Sometimes I go into, you know, my, my shala here in Ubud is on the second mm. floor, as you know, you know, mm. and there's, there's some nice views out the windows. Um, you know, sometimes yeah. I come in and the students have arrived early and they've opened up all the blinds so, so they can have a view <laughs> out the window and I immediately <laughs> shut them. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, active receptivity is a, it's a great term. You know, we really have to be fully present in our embodied state to, you know, to, 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 to learn all that we can learn through the practice. Mm. Um, you know, and when you're really in that state, it's it's like you, you know, sometimes people criticize the Ashtanga practice. They say it's boring because you're just doing the, the same postures over and over again. But when you're really in that, that state of active receptivity, I mean, you know, Trikonasana is, is an amazing posture. It's like, how many times, yeah. how many times have I practiced Trikonasana? You know, I, <laughs> I still learn new things from it, you know, all the time. It's, uh, yeah. you know, coming coming to it with those, you know, that, that, that fresh state of perception every day and, you know, just being fully present with, with what it has to show you and what, what it has to teach you. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, you know, again, this is a quality that's, that's disappearing from the world, you know, mm. due to, 
you know, due to all the factors you've mentioned. You know, and again, I think that's, you know, I really blame the internet for that. And, you know, as I said, yeah. as I said, the people who grew, who grew up never not knowing the internet have a lot more trouble, a much, much harder time, I think, discovering that state of active receptivity. Do you think that's because there's, you know, I know obviously smartphones have changed everything, but just because there's always access to some stimuli, yeah, you know, there's, exactly. it's always there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 And it, it demolishes our attention span. I mean, I, I feel it mm. too. You know, I, mm. I try to do all the things that, uh, you know, promote active receptivity, but, you know, I, I certainly feel my attention span isn't what it was, you know. 20 years ago when I, <laughs> I had less access to the internet, you know, <laughs> didn't yeah. have a smartphone. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's a big, big, big problem for sure. Yeah. And I guess imagination kind of falls into this as well, doesn't it? You know, this, uh, mm -hmm. this ability to sort of have a free mind to sort of play and be imaginative with ideas without having so much external input kind of, yeah. uh, which can be constantly nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I've actually seen people in uh, in yoga studios even come into a stanga where they have a smartwatch and they start timing and you know calculating calories and <laughs> yeah, right. you know it's yeah it's become uh, I kind of for me I watch it and it's sort of a bit bizarre but I guess it's sort of I think this is why McGillcrest's work has been so important because it's sort of explained where that comes from you know mm -hmm. this kind of um, polar view of things or you know why is it that people have that focus or why is it that someone has that view and you know it sort of really helped me understand that if you're really operating from that side of your brain then probably that feels good <laughs> you yeah. know to sort of try to manipulate control and measure everything because you are getting that feedback to that part of your brain that probably lights up and feels gives you some kind of dopamine hit or something yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah, and mm. also when we're, you know, when we're teaching beginners in the Mysore room, you know, the first thing they always ask is if they can have a sheet to, to, to look at and follow yeah. along, or, or they pull out their phone and, you know, I'll see the phone beside the mat with the chart, and of course I immediately, you know, take those away. <laughs> Not allowed. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and you can see that makes a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. It's like suddenly they're, mm. you know, because again, they don't have that, that feedback beside them to, you know, to attend to you know they they have to find the memory of what they're doing within themselves and within the the, the embodied state and that's actually a very uncomfortable thing for for certain people to some people to get yeah. used to yeah 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 definitely and it, I, I also find it interesting that you can potentially practice for a very long time and potentially you know potentially move into very what you might say advanced asana but still you know still very very left hemisphere dominated mm -hmm. in the way you see and do things you know oh for sure yeah i see that all the time yeah yeah, yeah. so again mm. it's it's not what you do it's how you do it you know it's the quality yeah. of awareness you bring to it you know that that matters somebody can be doing half primary and you know having a very deeply embodied experience and you know getting mm. very deep benefits from the practice and someone else can be doing third series and you know not really getting much more than a you know a health workout so, <laughs> yeah. yeah it kind of becomes a little bit maybe more more physical i guess more external yeah yeah uh, i think uh, 
you know, in terms of intuition and listening to your body and kind of the feedback it gives you and stuff, and um, you know, I, I I've gone into this a little bit around. Uh, I don't I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to go into this or <laughs> or bring it up, but I don't know if I want to use this word mass psychosis, you know, or mm. sort of being a bit uh, disconnected, you know, because. I, I, again, I, I haven't really talked about this too much because I feel like COVID and everything has been completely just, you know, like, like it never happened. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what it feels like here. But there's a large part of me from, I, I constantly refer back to COVID from Ian's work, McGillcrest's work, you know, he's, I constantly sort of, my mind just flashes back to all of this. And one of the main things that came up for me around this and the vaccination and whatnot was, was a deep, deep, feeling that this is wrong <laughs> mm. and I'm not going to do this you know it was a it was like an intuitive kind of thing in within me that was screaming at me really you know it was a really deep felt experience that this way of doing things was incorrect and I had so much resistance towards it and I met so many people that just completely didn't and um it's really interesting I, I relate this back to the hemispheres I think that um there's a kind of, um, I don't know, like you, I feel like you kind of are what you practice a little bit. And uh, yeah. maybe if you practice avoiding things or, um, yeah, I guess avoidance is the right word, or sort of blocking things out and not bringing them to the surface, then it's much easier to sort of um, live that way or sort of ignore things and pretend things don't happen and sort of... You know, I, I do relate this a lot to this Danga practice where you, you can't really avoid things. It's very difficult to avoid things. You have to kind of bring things to the surface. And yeah, for me, this has been something that's been so prolific in the last two or three years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, same with me. I was, it was around the beginning of COVID that, you know, I really started delving into McGillcrest. And, you know, again, yeah. as, as much as it reinforced my own ways of, Receiving the world and being in the world, it also provided a, a, a very good explanation of why <laughs> why the yeah. world seemed to be going insane, you know, because it was going <laughs> insane. I mean, McGillchrist himself yeah. has said that, you know, it's human civilization really is, I think one interview I saw, he called it a good old-fashioned mass psychosis, um, yeah. you know, and, and COVID was, as you said, sort of the, the extreme expression of that. Um, so yeah, it was as frustrating as it was to watch that happen around me. It was comforting to have that explanation mm. of it, you know, that it was this, I guess, this polar manifestation of, of you know, the worst elements of, of, of you know, the left hemisphere taking yeah. over. Um, yeah, it's it's been an extremely interesting <laughs> few years. Yeah. You know, yeah, just, that's, to, that's just, the, just 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 <laughs> to kind of hide out here in Bali and and watch it all <laughs> unfold around me, yeah. Do you feel like it's been like that for you? To sort of, do you feel like you've been sort of removed from it a little bit where you are? Yeah, well, you know, I live in a, a village outside of Ubud, and um, not much had to change about my life. So, yeah, mm. I mean, it affected a lot. You know, it. it of course, affected my income in a, in a huge way. It affected mm. my ability to, to, to travel, you know, to go and, and 
or the Mysore and go home and visit my family. And, and so all of those yeah. things have been uh, very taxing and very stressful for me. Um, but, mm. but yeah, all the same, I, I, I have felt like I, you know, I, I've had a safe little sort of bubble here that I could watch it all unfold yeah. from, you know, without having to fundamentally change much about how I, how I do things or, or how I am in yeah. the world. So yeah, I'm grateful for that. You know, there are other places where it might have been mm. uh, more difficult, for sure. Yeah, especially your home country of Canada. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. something we've all been, <laughs> yeah, we've all been observing kind of quite closely. It's kind of uh, that's been sort of more. I don't know what other people have been seeing globally, but um, probably because of my link to you, also. But Canada has been sort of a focal point for me in terms of what's been going on there, and I know that's your home. Mm-hmm. country and I know you've been quite open about and talk, you know I, I sort of use your Facebook page as a, as a resource for critical thinking on COVID and what's going on globally and I know you're quite vocal about it because I guess it's definitely affected you in your home life in terms of your origin country. Yeah it's been it's been very distressing for me because I love Canada you know I, I live yeah. here in Bali but you know I, I've always thought I would end up back in Canada and you know I, Spend more time in nature there, which I love. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's been quite a challenge for me to, especially to watch it from afar. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it's interesting for me with McGillcrest's work, and you know, him giving so many detailed explanations of what happens to people when they have strokes or different kind of injuries to the brain, depending on which hemisphere, and how really when someone is operating predominantly from their left hemisphere, you could really describe it as, as crazy, <laughs> you know, yeah. literally, or some sort of form of, um, you know, so, sociopath or psychopath. And mm-hmm. the detail he goes into with it, it really, to me, sort of explained how bureaucracy is kind of operating these days. And, uh, you know, really how globally you can kind of see um, policies and politics being played out that is kind of predominantly being reinforced from this kind of less left hemispheric view of the world. And I think that I've been able in my life to sort of avoid a lot of that and sort of live in places and sort of stay out of that loop. But I think COVID was, it was like a prison for me. It was like, I couldn't get away from it. You know, yeah. it was like, uh, it didn't matter where I was. It was, I was going to be forced to sort of, um, live in madness you know for me it was like i'm gonna have to live in a state of madness i think that's where that term mass psychosis comes from because there was no there was no way of getting around it you know mm. it was everywhere it was everywhere i i couldn't move it was like a prison it was extreme yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah no i agree uh, um yeah and you know politics and and all of these sorts of things i've i've always had literally no interest in uh, yeah. whatsoever and then COVID forced me to you know to delve quite deeply into all of that because I, I yeah. needed I needed to understand what was happening and <laughs> why it was happening um, but yeah these are all you know whether we call it corporatism or technocracy you know these these mm-hmm. very strong global trends you know as you said you, you can't escape it and that's because these mm-hmm. you know these trends are are, are 
happening transnationally. They're not contained within borders. Um, you know, these are very much a manifestation of you know, left hemisphere psychopathy, you know, psychopathy mm. as you said. You know, corporations, I can't remember who said it recently. I heard somebody say that um, you know, corporations are legally given personhood in, in I think, most countries of the world. And, but if you analyze mm. them as people, they'd basically be psychopaths. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah. this is, you know, this is what's happening with, with, you know, in COVID as we're seeing this, this, you know, corporations are taking over, you know, the governance mm. of, of, of the planet and, you know, they're psychopathic entities. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's very disturbing. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. You know, I've been ridiculed many times by people because I've never voted, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's interesting because I, people have kind of really condemned me for that and that, you know, it's this right I have. And I kind of mm. felt like, well, actually, I kind of am voting <laughs> yeah. in my own way. You know, I just I, don't, I choose to not promote <clears throat> something I think is unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I never voted in my life until the last Canadian election. <laughs> and then I yeah. felt like what, what was happening there was so bad that I just had to vote for... <laughs> The other party you know just to, yeah um but yeah for the same reason you know I, I didn't vote until i was you know whenever that was a year or two ago mm. 45 years yeah. old um just because i never felt like anybody represented my views and why, why should no. i <laughs> why should i cast a vote for somebody who doesn't actually represent my views or what i want to to see in the yeah. world so yeah i've always been an anarchist um in that sense <laughs> well i mean anarchy you know the, the, the term usually most people think it has negative connotations but it doesn't mm. i mean nature operates under the principle of anarchy it's, it's decentralized yeah. intelligence you know anarchy doesn't mean a lack of order it's, there's actually profound order in, in anarchy it's just natural order that arises spontaneously through decentralized intelligence and this is how complex yeah. systems operate right yeah. um you know the the intelligence arises from within rather than being imposed from above so, yeah yeah yeah, I was fortunate fortunate enough to grow up in a family that was very against, uh, you know, authoritarianism and control, mm -hmm. and to kind of um, question authority. So I think that uh, that's been in me since forever. So I think that's probably got a lot to do with, you know, my ability to just not take things because someone tells me that's the way it is. You know, just sort of live a bit more skeptical and critical and yeah to question things a little bit, which is actually a little bit difficult in Norway because people are, it's a beautiful country and people are very trusting of the government, but mm -hmm. at the same time, um, they're very, <laughs> it's very, uh, it's, it's actually very good. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of trust in the government and society here, which I love, but there's also this sort of, um, maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah, well. You know, just to kind of go along. Yeah. yeah, that was the problem in Canada, I think, or has been the problem mm -hmm. is, you know, too much trust in, you know, people are too nice there. You know, Canadians yeah. are too nice, and they, they just assume that, you know, these governments and forces wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't do anything to harm them, and so they easily get taken advantage of. Yeah, I think that's been a little bit the case here, but it's sort of, I think it took a, it took Norwegians a really long time to get pissed off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's so much trust and patience here in the the government and the country. It took a really long time for them to start um 
having a negative reaction to it, you know, I think it was just sort of towards the end, really, that people started to sort of question what was going on. But um, the main thing for me now is just, it's just like completely forgotten. You know, mm. it's just, it's just, it's, the, it's kind of strange to me that this sort of weird period is just uh, being completely forgotten about. And actually I heard uh, McGillcrest talk about something related to this, which helped me experience it and it was sort of um actually no it wasn't it was that link you sent the other day um with these doctors talking on a podcast and mm. i think they were saying that it was like 96 percent of all prof- medical professionals took the vaccine yeah and that you know to kind of then go against what you took yourself and also to kind of um go back on what you've promoted to other people is kind of too difficult for the psyche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, you're kind of stuck. You have to kind of, and this is what I've seen in uh, globally, but especially Canada with Trudeau is this, this left down. hemispheric yeah. total denial. Yeah. Doubling yeah. down. Just like, yeah. even in the face of being completely publicly shamed and like yeah. totally you're in wrong. Yeah. It's just to push harder, yeah. you know? Yeah, and they're yeah. still doing it in Canada. It's uh, it's really crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think McGillcrest's work really helped me understand that this when he was describing different patients who'd had um, strokes of the right hemisphere and their complete denial of reality. You yeah. know, it was like a, they can't you know, admit that they're wrong. Yeah, yeah, like could even be missing a limb on the right side, but completely in denial. It's yeah. like, yeah, that's. You know, it's, it was sort of extreme. It sort of really helped me understand that the the mind is quite fragile in that way. Yeah. That uh, yeah, if you're if you're operating in that way, you could deny something that is completely obvious to everyone else, and then you'll just push even harder. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so for me, this you know, the, I guess McGillcrest works has sort of highlighted a lot of stuff you know, globally around COVID. Uh, and I said, I think there's like rabbit holes on <laughs> so many things uh, around this. But um, do you feel like a lot of this comes from just being disembodied? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always said when you're, when you're embodied, it's, you know, it's, it's very hard, you know, for you to be led astray, to be, um, to be deceived. You know, I think when you're when you're grounded in the wisdom of the body and the intuition, um, you know, there's a much greater chance that you're you're going to make the right decisions, um, mm. you know, and stay connected to reality as it is. Um, so yeah, no, I think disembodiment has a plays a huge role in it. You know, people can't yeah. people can't really be manipulated if they're disembodied, or sorry, if mm. they're embodied. Yeah. yeah. And I guess this made me think about this kind of comfort thing again, you know, around, uh, you know, maybe modern living a little bit that we've kind of, we protect ourselves quite a lot in terms of um, being comfortable. And in the way we sort of one, we don't really want to feel pain. We don't really want to be uncomfortable. We don't really want to be cold or, you know, this kind of, we want to keep this uh, perfect kind of temperature and sort of, um, kind of cushion around us so that we kind of have less not less experience but I guess less embodied experience so everything is a little bit more dumbed down and tapered down and yeah I was thinking that maybe this kind of leads a little bit to um 
yeah, just disembodiment in general, I guess. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think you have to um, to get more deeply embodied. You do have to push yourself, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, into places of not necessarily discomfort, but novelty and experience. Um, novelty, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when everything always stays the same, then it's it's much easier to, I guess, drift away from that embodied state. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, you know, again, one one reason for always pushing deeper into the Ashtanga practice. Um mm. finish primary series and you can start to work into intermediate series and give yourself, you know, new challenges to encounter and that will, you know, take you into deeper layers of embodiment. Hmm. So do you feel like that as as a species because I look at all other species and they're you know, they're met with physical challenges all the time, right? They're mm. kind of, you know, it's, it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing to be physically challenged as a, another yeah. animal on this planet, really. Yeah. And I think that that's just a normal experience that you're much more in your instinctual senses around feedback from your environment. And it's not dumbed down, is it? It's much more mm. alive, I guess mm. it could be the word. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I've thought about this a bit because, you know, I've had some people describe Ashtanga as extreme or, mm-hmm. um, you know, different kind of terminology around being going deeper into the body in that way. And I and I kind of was I was watching a nature program not too long ago and and there was these birds that had just come out of basically just, you know, they nearly died. <laughs> you know, they, were, they nearly got murdered and eaten and then they're kind of fly up to this birch on the in the in the jungle and then the sun setting and the camera panned across this group of birds and i thought that's just uh, an interesting experience you know you've just come out of this fight or flight you know nearly died mode and then there is no external stimulus you're back into your intuitive state of yeah. being connected to nature and you know everything that's going on around you and that's a completely focused aware experience of being in the body that is not protected or safe or in any way cushioned at all it's you it's very raw and alive and i and i thought most species are like that every day and i was thinking that humans have kind of very much not like that (laughs) you know anymore and i thought maybe the astanga system and other physical practices that kind of take you you know, I don't want to say extreme, but you know, you you kind of push yourself a little bit in some ways is maybe not such a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, to have novel physical experiences, I think, or something that's out of the ordinary. Yeah, it's like here, you know, it's, we like to go hiking. Sometimes we go up to the mountain. Sometimes on the day off and go hiking, and it's 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 rained a lot in Bali the last year, like a lot, a yeah. lot. We didn't really have a dry mm. season. Um, so it was often like, you know, on my day off, it's like, well, I'm tired. I'm getting up early every day of the week to practice and go and teach, you know. It's, it looks like it's going to rain on the day off. You know, maybe we shouldn't go to the mountain. And then, you know, yeah. something inside me says, no, nah, like, do it, you know, just go. <laughs> and there's been a few days where we were, you know, halfway up the mountain and it's pouring rain and, you know, it's I'm tired and I'm trying to pull myself up the mountain and I'm getting wet and I'm getting cold and it's like, oh, it's, it's, this is not pleasant. <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, when we come back from those days, I always feel great. It's like, yeah, 
you know, like you said, it's 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 just encountering those challenges and you know being halfway up a mountain with nowhere warm or dry to go and having to yeah. deal with it and you yeah. know and, and and yeah, it's 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 wonderful. It it, it really takes mm. you to a place that yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, yeah, you're alive. You yeah. feel alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think we need to do like base jumping, or we, you know, I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that's like, you know, it's cool if people want to do extreme sports, and I guess that brings a certain <laughs> energy in the body. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons why people do base jumping and other activities like that. But I think that there's definitely something about being out in nature and exposed to the elements and uh, dealing with that that has a sort of very embodied (laughs) experience and uh, I kind of feel that a lot living in Norway just because you you get more extreme uh, temperature changes and things like that Mm -hmm. you you kind of have to deal with your environment more even even though it's a, a rich western country you're still exposed to the elements in it and it definitely brings up a strong reaction in me in the body sometimes but I kind of try to take a different attitude towards it around this sense of being alive and mm-hmm. and actually my body is kind of alive and sort of experiencing you know yeah yeah sure I'm sure you had that a lot in Canada mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> but mm-hmm. um I guess one other thing Ian was just because I, I, I think a lot of people want to kind of ask this or and I know we've touched on it a little bit but um, would you have any kind of words on how people can approach approach embodied movement practice such as yoga or Ashtanga yoga in a way that you feel brings about this healthy balance potentially and that you know maybe some things to some pitfalls to avoid that you that you've kind of learned over the years, you know? Yeah, I think <clears throat> as much as possible, letting go of, you know, most forms of external instruction <clears throat> is the most helpful. And just mm. trying to pay attention to, you know, what, what you're experiencing each day and each moment, you know, in the practice on the mat. Um, you know, it's, you know, as we've already talked about a little bit, it's very easy to get caught up in, <clears throat> you know, what's the correct way to do something anatomically or, um, mm. you know, this and that. And, you know, just to let go of all of that and just to try to feel, you know, feel one's way through the practice, you know, feel as if one's an animal, you know, what should come next, you know, from the the intelligence of the body, you know, the wisdom of the body, rather than from sort of these abstract idealizations of the mind, um, to try to practice mm. that way as much as possible. You know, and the beauty of the Ashtanga system is we have this set sequence, you know, we do have to memorize that and move through the set sequence. But to me, that that frees things up you know you you have the sequence memorized that you're going to go through on that day and then you can just pay attention to what you're actually experiencing you know at the the felt you know physiological sensation based level as you move through it and just to give all authority to that you know give the authority to what you're feeling how you feel and to try to make you know each action come in response to to feeling you know rather than to ideas of the mind 
I think that's, that's yeah. absolutely the most important thing to try to cultivate in the practice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting, I feel that that part you just described is maybe why people stop. <laughs> and it's also the part where you can learn the most, you know, when you get to these points where you have to kind of go into another layer or another a deeper layer of yourself as to why you're experiencing difficulty or something uncomfortable. Yeah. And that you can either choose to encounter that and experience it or you can choose to avoid it and stop doing it and the, I think a lot of people I've met who stopped practicing the stanga it was kind of that part and I kind of felt like talking to people that they kind of missed something there you know there was an opportunity <laughs> there was an opportunity to experience yourself in a in a state where you were challenged yeah and you can kind of either choose to go into that and explore it or you can avoid it or dismiss it yeah yeah for sure um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually almost every day. I'm amazed that I get through my practice, <laughs> you know, when I start the practice, it's, it's early in the morning and, you know, I'm tired and then it's, I think about what's ahead and I'm like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I can do it today. And it's, it's always like, okay, well, let's just see how it goes. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's just about dropping into each moment and yeah, working through those challenges. And then at the end of the practice, it's like, oh. I did it and I feel great. <laughs> you know, I didn't necessarily feel great while I was doing it, but yeah. It's, yeah. 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 Is, is the reason you practice changed over the years in, or is it kind of, you know, similar or? Uh, I don't think fundamentally it's changed, which is, you know, again, it's, it's, it's just to have that experience of deep self-exploration. You know, I, I've, I've never had a particular goal in the practice. Um, you know, I never felt like the practice was a vehicle to take me to a particular place that I'm eventually going to reach. It, it was just to, you know, have this deep, or it still is, to have this deep embodied, challenging, but deep embodied experience, you know, and to yeah. just see how, how far I can go into that. It's, mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it's changed at all. Um, I think my way of doing it is, has changed somewhat, but yeah, I don't think the fundamental reasons have changed. And, you know, so Ian, Mr. McGillchrist said uh, in one of his talks that, uh, I think he quoted it, you, you, we find the spiritual through the physical. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I thought a lot about that in terms of what I sort of define or feel around spirituality or religion and all I guess in some ways I feel like I have a religious practice but um, I don't really follow <laughs> a, a religion you know but it feels in some ways you could describe it as a religious practice where you sort of well I feel like it is when I you know when I come to the map but um, I wonder if you had any thoughts around around that particular quote you know finding the spiritual through the physical and I'm, I'm obviously relating this to yoga practice but in terms of what you feel is spiritual about it yeah um you know i i think ultimately there is no difference between you know the the spiritual and the physical um mm. you know just as i think body and mind is a, a false duality or a false dichotomy um mm. You know, I, I think the same thing about spirituality. You know, it's 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 not 
what we're doing, but it's it's how we're doing it. I think anything can be a spiritual practice if if you're doing it in a way that promotes self-encountering through embodiment. Um, mm. You know, when I uh, I used to like, you know, some of the things Reinhold Messner said about mountain climbing because it was very similar. You know, especially when he mm. would he would do some of the you know, some of his, his, his most difficult climbs he would do alone, you know, and he'd mm. talk about that process of, of self-encountering through the, you know, the extreme hardship of, of climbing the mountain. And, you know, I thought, well, yeah. he's a yogi. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just what yeah. it is, um, you know, so it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be something that extreme. But, but yeah, any, any, anything we do, you know, whether it's a formal practice or not, you know, if it's, if it promotes embodiment and it pr promotes some sort of challenge that you know involves us encountering some aspect of ourselves that we wouldn't necessarily encounter otherwise, and I think that that's that's what mm. spirituality is. Um, you know, it's 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 not something separate from physical. You know, right. I, I remember seeing sometimes. You know, you go to Mysore, and some people are, you know, they like to advertise how spiritual they are and how into the <laughs> you know the the non-physical aspects of yoga that they are um and and you know i sometimes heard people say oh well that person's only here for asana as if that's something very degrading he's only here for asana he's only here yeah. for the physical practice and i was like yeah. well, what do you mean like it's all there <laughs> it's all there right like i'm only here for the asana <laughs> like i wouldn't i wouldn't come yeah. to my store if i wouldn't coming to practice asana but you know no. it's, it's, it's deeply spiritual that's, that's where it's at yeah, it's like they're reducing the body into a bodily an embodied practice as something negative or like yeah. superficial yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah i've always found that a bit strange as well it's sort of um they're the same aren't they you know but uh I've I've struggled with a, a little bit that in some religion you know that they sort of it's sort of the body is reduced to this kind of vehicle yeah, and it, like a disconnection between it, and actually, it's something you're trying to, through enlightenment, you're going to transcend. And I, I've I've never connected with that. You know? so yeah, I've never same really with me. Felt, yeah. yeah, you know, I really found a, a lot of that in the Buddhism, Buddhist, and especially the Vipassana mm -hmm. community, which I, you know, I still practice Vipassana. But I used to be heavily involved with, you know, the Vipassana mm -hmm. organization and sitting retreats. And yeah, I found that very odd because to me, Vipassana was a very deeply embodied practice just as Ashtanga is. I mean, what's more embodied than sitting there and feeling the sensations in your body <laughs> continuously for 24 hours a day? I mean, this is, this is, this is the epitome mm. of embodiment. And yet I would listen to how the other practitioners described it. And yeah, it was as if they were trying to escape their body. You know, they were trying yeah. to use the body as a tool to transcend the body, which to me is mm. completely the wrong the wrong perception to take on it yeah so uh yeah i've yeah. also always found that very odd yeah that idea that the body is something to be overcome yeah. rather than something to embrace yeah like maybe this state of enlightenment is where you're disconnected from the body yeah and yeah. you're somewhere else yeah I've, yeah I've never really attuned to that is i've always felt of myself as very animalistic you know like mm -hmm. um I don't really separate myself from the other species on this planet in a way. And I kind of feel that potentially, I think McGill Christ said this, that uh, 
instinctually humans have more instincts we have access to other um, experiences potentially than other animals probably due to evolution but i don't see it that one is better or worse or yeah. in some sort of hierarchy you know it's just that we all have a different experience but i definitely encounter nature and reality through my body not from transcending it to some other space <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um yeah no i love to watch animals and, and the things that they can do that i can't do you know like i hmm. i love watching how my dogs identify things by smelling the air you know it's, yeah. you know if i if i hear a monkey in the distance and i say monkey and my dog will immediately put his nose up and or her yeah. nose up and start sniffing the air and, and i just watch and i think wow what, do, what would it be like to be able to do that you know just to be able to yeah. smell the air and suddenly know everything about <laughs> <laughs> what's going on around you and yeah. yeah it's 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 incredible um yeah no i i agree completely yeah i i heard mcgill christ talk about this you know in terms of some species just instinctively know what to do without ever being like reared or taught that you know it's not like uh someone explained something to him of how to go and find food or procreate or, <clears throat> you know, he described some birds that have these completely uh, extravagant mating display rituals, you know, mm. that, uh, you know, they're not taught that, but there's an instinctual driver and sort of wisdom within their body just, just knows what to do. Yeah. And it's just, it's just there, you know, yeah. it's like, I feel like a lot of my, my practices these days are trying to sort of connect with whatever that is, you know, whatever that internal wisdom is that kind of knows what to do and what's right and what's wrong for me that I can't read in a book or I can't get that externally from somewhere else. And it's sort of, I, I feel like being in my body and especially being in nature is, uh, mm. it, it kind of brings me closer to that in some way. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, I guess it might be different if everyone's walking around with a chip in their head, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah. which is something that McGill Christ talked about. And I just thought, okay, that's just you know that's the next level of the opposite of what we're talking about, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, transhumanism is is extremely frightening to me. You know, it's uh, mm. yeah. Could you could you expand on that a little bit? Or? Um, well, yeah, I think it's basically everything we've we've been talking about um you know i think again it's uh it's taking one away from that sort of deep embodied intuitive you know instinctive intelligence um hmm. yeah no, it's, uh, to me that's absolutely the the wrong direction for humanity to go um hmm. yeah Yeah, I thought about this recently because I, I live in Oslo, which is actually, I mean, it's a city, but it's, uh, you know, for Norway, it's, it's quite small, you know, and uh, nature is everywhere around the city. But mm -hmm. I still feel it, you know, just being in um, in that kind of city space and just being, uh, you know, just around bricks and buildings and concrete a lot more in traffic. You know, it's just, it's just there all the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've definitely thought about maybe kind of changing my location again at some point and kind of moving back more into 
some sort of natural space. And, uh, you know, again, going into McGillchrist's book around this, around the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and how that's being externalised, you know, potentially with our environment living-wise. And, you know, it's just a... I think really what I'm saying is that book is making me rethink a lot of things or just sort of um, applying his view to a lot of things I'm doing these days and maybe changing some habits, <laughs> which is, I think is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, for me, if, you know, if I don't have close contact with, you know, a lot of elements of, of the natural world, I mean, I, I start to feel quite unwell, you know, pretty quickly. Really? Yeah, very imbalanced, you know psychologically and physically um yeah for me it's absolutely essential to you know to keep me connected to you know i mm. think that state of balance between the right and the left hemisphere you know for sure could you expand a bit on that like what, what is it you feel when you're in, in your body when you sort of is it like if you're in a city too long or something or you know things like that <clears throat> yeah yeah if, um, the times i have lived in a city um you know, I just, it's, it's, it's hard to describe explicitly, but I just start to feel, I guess, less connected to myself, less, mm. yeah, I just feel my nervous system becomes, you know, imbalanced in a way that, that doesn't feel right, doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is this active receptivity again, isn't it? It's this, mm. um, you're being aware of the experience you're having and then you're kind of adapting and changing it based on what your intuition is telling you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, rather than ignoring it and kind of just carrying it on anyway and then potentially maybe this is what kind of leads to a lot of sickness and unhealth. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if there's anything else you want to add, in or anything you want to express, then just let me know. Otherwise, I think we can kind of... Uh, Draw this to a bit of conclusion, or yeah, I think we've covered quite a bit. Well, that's, it's, yeah, it's great. I'm I'm really happy to to talk to somebody who's you know who's been exploring the you know the same themes through the Gilchrist. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, to be honest, Ian, it's that book. I think it's I think it's fifteen hundred pages. You know, it's not really a book. It's kind <laughs> yeah. of a, <laughs> yeah. I have to read it in chunks and then put it down, and then I kind of. I think about that for some time and then I go back and then, and then I might even just listen to one of his uh, talks in between, you know, it's a, yeah. I think it's going to take some time for sure to digest it and explore it. But uh, yeah, there's lots of things in and around this, but yeah, it really helps talking to you and other people that feel um, in line with this because it kind of, I guess it sort of restores a little bit of my faith in other people's view to sort of be critical and kind of look mm -hmm. at things in this sort of balanced way and not be so reductionist in their way of thinking, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially that there's a standard teachers like yourself out there that are kind of um, really advocating that way of practice and kind of creating spaces for people to kind of come and practice in that. Mm. What I think is like an essential holistic way to explore Ashtanga yoga. I think it's uh, it's in it's necessary. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again, Ian. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to practice with Ian, then you can find him in Ubud in Bali. And it, is it spaciousyoga.com still, Ian? You're... Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I can't recommend that enough. I haven't practiced with Ian previously and looking forward to coming back. But uh, yeah, thanks, Ian, and uh, probably talk to you again sometime soon. Okay, yeah, I hope so. Ciao. All right, take care.